Conviction is brought to you by Three Rings Circus Productions. For links to our valued sponsors and all the show notes from this podcast, please visit our website, threeringscircus.com.au. In the last episode of Conviction, we left Craig plotting a 1,000-kilometre open-water surf ski paddle to raise money for children's cancer. He was also just starting to become familiar with the private world of Project Gymere's first target, Les Kalachi. Thing to commit to an ultra marathon on a surf ski, it's another thing to do it. In true Craig Gouze fashion, the fact that he'd never ridden a surf ski 100 metres, let alone a thousand kilometres, seemed a minor obstacle. So, A to B for C, how was I going to explain this? I went to um, one of the surveillance jobs where we were sitting at Kalachi's, I uh, went and jumped in one of the other cars during a quiet period. And, I spoke to one of my partners there at work and, and told them, I said, listen, this is what I'm thinking about doing, what do you think? And they just turned around and said, you're a bloody idiot. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's a great response. Anyway, that night, it would have been a week where obviously Jesse wasn't in hospital because Lisa and I were both home in bed and were there after dinner and jumped into bed and thought, shit, how am I going to tell her this? Anyway, I thought, the only way is to, to mention it. I said, uh, Lee... I want to try and raise some money for the hospital. You've seen what they've got in there and what they don't have, more importantly, and uh, it'd be a great thing to actually raise some money. And I think she was thinking, oh, you know, we do some sort of little charity and, and buy a, a TV or two, and that's it. But I told her that I was going to paddle a 1,000 kilometres from Sydney to Queensland and, and try and raise a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And uh, she just looked at me and said, yeah, right. So I took that as, she didn't say no, so I took that as being positive, and uh, it was on. A parent's role in a child's cancer journey is one of support. Support of love, support of logistics, someone to be there. Craig understood this, but it wasn't enough. He was a doer. He needed to be doing. Over the time when you know Jessica had been diagnosed with the illness, I had so many family friends and other people from the surf club and the football club saying... If there's anything we can do, please let us do it for you. So I dragged all these people in that I thought could be involved with the charity and use their expertise. There was people in media marketing. There was people who were four-wheel drive experts. There was people in a surf club who could drive a support boat. Um, we just went on and on and on. So I, I grabbed this collage of people that I knew that t- could have their expertise and we formed a sort of a committee uh, I suppose I was the chairman of the committee and I'd dish out jobs and, and that's how we went about it. And the first thing I really had to do was learn how to paddle a ski. As I said, I never paddled one and if people are unfamiliar with riding a, an ocean ski or a surf ski, it was a surf ski at this time, even have an average person sit on one, you'll fall off. They're narrow. They're as wide as your bum and as long as 17 foot, so that's what, five metres or so. And they're bloody hard to sit on, let alone paddle in the surf. Uh, and it takes time, and I only—I didn't have time. I'd already made the decision that I was going to the next Australian Tolls, which was in March, and it was probably about eight to nine months away, uh, and would only just start this Les Kalachi job. 
and that was my plan. It took my mind off a lot of things, and I suppose this is one of the things that I was able to control my emotions. It gave me a focus. It gave me something positive to, to do for the kids. And it wasn't just Jess, as I said. There was a lot of families in there struggling, a lot of families from out of Sydney that had to come and commit themselves to you know leaving their job and leaving their family. So there's a lot of expense, and um, that's what I decided to do, was raise money not only for Jess, but it was also for all these other people. Craig looked around for organisations to connect with. He quickly identified some key partners. I saw what was needed and what was going on. There was the Children's Cancer Institute of Australia, which looks at the future, looks at trying to find a cure. I looked at the current situation, which was the Sydney Children's Hospital. Uh, They were the ones who were looking after the kids, so I was going to donate money there so we could buy things and equipment. And the third one was uh, Camp Quality and the Starlight, these were two organisations that helped families where kids were terminally ill and especially Starlight, they granted wishes to kids that weren't going to survive and would send them to Disneyland or other places like that. And Camp Quality ran a brilliant, brilliant uh, camp for kids and also for people like Jessica who were just recently diagnosed, now turning up to school with no hair, they would run the Camp Quality puppet show which explained to the whole school in the assembly through a puppet show of what cancer was and how it affected kids. And it stopped that bullying mentality of, of someone turning up with no hair and it gave these kids an understanding on why and what, you know, especially Jessica was going through. And they were the charities that I picked and uh, there we go. Today there is a term, weekend warrior. Lycra-clad middle-aged men that train on weekends for a half marathon or other meritorious adventures. This wasn't Craig. If he didn't train in an elite way, he would not only fail, it wouldn't be too dramatic to say, he wouldn't survive. I picked up a ski from a a mate, it was an old ski, and I went down to the nearby Narrabeen Lakes and watched a group of paddlers that I knew used to train down there and watched what they did. I also contacted uh, another female who was an ocean paddler, a marathon paddler, and got some tidbits off her on what to do. And that was it, I started. Luckily the in-laws had a waterfront place property down at Avalon on Clareville Beach. I kept my ski there and it was just a matter of getting out and trying to paddle as much as I could. And, you know, the first three or four times I was in the more, in the water more than on top of it. But like anything, if you persist, you persist, uh, you get better and better and that's what I had to do. I had to spend hours on there and the hours I spent I had to try and take from time where I'd usually sleep I didn't want to deprive my family especially the other two siblings that didn't have the attention like Jessica that were at home we still had to pay the attention to them so I'd usually get up at 4am in the morning if I was home and I'd paddle in the darkness now that's a chore as well for the ones who aren't from Sydney you know we do have sharks here we do have big sharks here Um, and in the night time they're more prevalent than the daytime Paddling at 4am, it's completely dark. And again, being a new paddler, I had to make sure, you know, I stayed on top of the water. Um, I also used to train at work. If I was in the office and doing paperwork, rather than sit there for half an hour and have my lunch, I'd I'd uh, throw my training gear on and I'd do the stairwell. Yeah, the stairwell at the commission was a great place to train. It was um, seven double flights, so it was like 14 flights of stairs. And I'd start at the bottom, run as hard as I can to the top and then uh, recover coming back down. I'd do that for half an hour. It was a perfect hard-hitting workout to get the cardio and the lungs going. 
I needed to be as fit as I could. I knew that. Uh, I was already pretty fit, though, from playing football and doing surf boat rowing. Uh, and as I said, I'd try and fit training in wherever I could. Learning how to paddle again was the hardest thing that I did. And, um, yeah, the more I did it, the better I got. With training underway, Craig now needed to set a challenge that would attract attention. As I said, I, I picked this marathon because I'd heard about the Molokai, which is a, a race over in Hawaii, and it's the longest ocean race for, uh, or not the longest, it's an ocean race, it's probably the hardest ocean race in the world, and it was the most competitive. They do, I think, 70 kilometres from one island to another, and I thought, well, if I could do that every day for 16 days, it's going to get a bit of attention, and I know that through the media, that was the best way of raising money. And that's why I picked uh, the distance A to B for C and how I worked out roughly. I'd take 16 days in the open ocean to uh, cover my distance. And you know, for me training, that's what I had to train for. I had to train that I could uh, roughly do 70 kilometres each day. So it was like doing the Molokai every day for 16 days. And I knew I'd earn respect if I did it. Um, I knew there would be a lot of doubters out there. And I'd, at first, a couple of training sessions on the ski, I sort of doubted myself as well. There is the old adage of work-life balance. Craig had just added a whole other element to this with his ultra-marathon fundraiser. But his work didn't stop for anything, no matter how noble the distraction. With everything else going on, you know, Kalachi didn't stop. He was just still full-on. There was people in and out and we were logging what they were doing and we would build evidence on all these people. We just let them come in. I know we let a lot of drugs go and we were going to be criticised at court for that. But we were actually starting to get a, a huge network of drug suppliers through Sydney and build a great dossier of evidence against every every one of them. There was also another a bloke by the name of Dave Parker who was mates with Kalachi. He had a wife, I think her name was Cherie, and they lived on the central coast, so it was about an hour and 15 for them to come down from their central coast home. But they were purely criminals. That's all they did. Drugs, stolen goods, whatever they could do, they were into it, but they were, they were good mates with Kalachi, even though they'd bagged the crap out of him behind his back. Um, but they would come down, and they were there a fair bit at this place, and they were buying a lot of drugs and supplying it up the Central Coast or wherever they could uh, supply them to. Dave was a massive man. He was a big sort of buff-headed bloke. Um, but Dave became part of it, and we actually did another takeaway with Dave. He, he took a, a heap of drugs back up the coast and was talking about giving it to a guy who he played squash with who was a well-known supplier up on the Central Coast. And again, it just cemented another part of talk in the unit. Uh, we ended up getting the uh, Central Coast Police to do the raid once we knew that uh, Parker had offloaded the drugs to this guy at the entrance in his house and they did a, a morning raid the next day. And again, Kalachi and Parker never thought anything of it. You know, We'd probably knocked off a fair few by this time in takeaways, but it was always well away. And sometimes it was two or three persons down, down the line. So uh, Kalachi may have supplied to a certain guy who then gave it to another guy and, and would arrest the second or third receiver. Uh, and again, it was continuity. We knew exactly it was a drug that came from Kalachi's place. Um, and it kept the drug ring going as well. And it kept us in the know of what sort of drugs they were talking about. If you closely observe someone without their knowledge for any length of time, some interesting behaviours will reveal themselves. In Kalachi's case, no one expected the 70s soul singer Barry White to feature. Yeah, a lot of the time, you know, Dave Parker and Keith Bonney, they'd be out there doing drugs, but the rest of the time they're just talking crap and just being like normal people in a unit block. 
And it wasn't until sometimes, you know, Les would turn around and say, right, you two, please fuck off. I've got something happening. And uh, we soon learnt what was happening. Um, the guys would disappear and you could hear Kalachi go into his bedroom and it sounded like he had a shower. And uh, next thing, old Barry White would come on and you'd hear this sexy music being played. And, of course, you know, we always had someone at the front watching and we had a camera also in the foyer so we could see it. And uh, sometimes there was one girl, sometimes there was two, and they'd come up and knock on the door and the door would open and with Barry White or some sexy music playing and Les turned into the sexy Les. And being in the office, it was quite funny. If you're in the office, again, we had the monitors who were near our desk and they could actually turn their equipment onto loudspeaker so if there was drug talk we could say oh they're talking about this or they're talking about that um so yeah we could listen from our desk really to what was going on when the barry white music came on everyone knew what was going on les was going to have sex yeah he would usually probably pay or entice them by having some coke or whatever drug he had up there but as the music came on we knew what was going on. It was quite funny. Here you got a number of cops and, and also uh, public servants who were signed into our commission. Often would get up on the on the tables ourselves and have a bit of a boogie and dance and laugh while this was happening. And uh, after a couple of minutes, we'd turn it off. Uh, there wasn't a chance we wanted to listen to, to Les having sex with these girls because there was no uh, drug business being done. But it was always very humorous that when this music happened, and it wasn't just a one-off thing, it would happen quite regularly, that uh, the officer would turn into a, a bit of a, a funny place for a few minutes and uh, every time it happened, everyone got up. It was quite funny. It became a bit of a ritual for the office. Back to the preparation of the surf ski marathon. Craig decided to test out his newfound skills. With the surf ski paddling, I'd sort of built up enough, I thought, anyway, to get by and I really wanted to test myself over a distance. You know, probably only done five to ten k's as a major. Where I live, there's a, an event called 20 Beaches, and it's a, a race from Palm Beach to Manly, covering 20 beaches. I think it's 20-something kilometres. And I thought, okay, let's test yourself and go on this. Um, I did have the old ski, and I can remember the day I rolled up for it. I registered for it and rolled up to the beach, and I'm sure some of the other paddlers there thought I'd bought it out of some museum. There was a bit of chuckling going on. They said, you're going to paddle that? And I said, yeah, it's the only ski I've got. And they just shook their head. Anyway, I wasn't in there to race. I was in there to, to prove a thing that I could do 20 kilometres on the ski at this early stage. And uh, that was it. I took off from the beach and, of course, I was the last one off. Um, I just put my head down and bum up and decided to, to have a crack. Uh, it was very different. I'd never really paddled out in the ocean before and just the backwash off the headlands and certain points where you got to, you had to go around reefs at Newport and Long Reef and you're a fair way out, but... Uh, after the first hour and a half, I actually started to uh, pass a few guys. I thought, hey, this is all right. I'm doing all right. I thought I was going to be the last one off, off and, the, and stay that way. But I did actually pass a couple of guys. And, uh, yeah, I thought maybe I'm not as bad as I thought. The ski actually felt like it wasn't um, as hard to paddle as I thought balance-wise. It was starting to even itself out. But then I soon realised the ski was starting to sink. <laughs> 
I'd started to have water come in and in and in, and I hadn't paddled a ski this long, and I didn't realise there was cracks in the ski, and I was taking on water. So I actually had to paddle into a beach at one stage, the closest beach I could find near Long Reef, and, and empty the ski, and then get back out there and keep going. I did finish the ski paddle, and uh, I got to the beach. I wasn't last. I was about second or third last, but did manage to get there. And when I did pull the ski and I really needed a, a backhoe to bring the ski up from the water, it was totally full again. Had uh, obviously a massive crack and had taken in a heap of water, but I uh, couldn't care. I was over the moon that I'd made it. The organiser of the event actually I'd spoken to and uh, I'd told them what I was doing because I was trying to get the word out there amongst the paddlers and I was looking for any help I could get in training or equipment. And believe it or not, the prize for any entrant was a brand new ski. They were doing a raffle for all the people. All you had to do was enter the competition and your name went into the draw. Um, They said you had to be at the uh, trophy ceremony at the end. They were going to do the raffle draw then. And if your name was pulled out, you won the ski. Never thought it would be my name. I've never won anything in my life in relation to those sorts of things. So I didn't pay too much attention and... The other thing, I'd only just finished when they were doing the trophy ceremony. That's how long it took me to finish the race. And I can remember I was um, in the car park there at Manly. It's hard to get a car park, but I pulled the car up near the surf club and everyone was upstairs getting their trophies and whatnot. And I was trying to, to load this waterlogged ski back onto the roof of the car. And I thought I'll, I'll go up to the uh, ceremony and, and grab a, a beer and a steak sandwich before I go. And I went up there and they said, oh, where were you? I said, what do you mean? They said, we did the raffle draw and your name was pulled out. And I said, you're joking. And they said, no, you won the ski, but because you weren't here, they drew the next number out. And I said, no way. And sure enough, that's what had happened. And a guy from North Narrabeen Surf Club ended up winning the ski. And the guy who was organising, I don't know if they rigged it or what, but or it was just a one-off chance, but it was true. I'd actually won the ski and because I wasn't there actually in the club at the time, they couldn't give it to me. Anyway, that was the luck of the draw and uh, I was still stuck with my old ski and, and that's how it went. So the training was going well. Craig had learned to be meticulous as an undercover cop. Everything that was in his control was planned perfectly. He used these skills in his marathon planning and training. Of course, he soon encountered the part of his endeavour that would never be in his control. Yeah, after doing this 20-kilometre paddle, I started to build a bit more confidence and my brother-in-law had actually started to, this is Lisa's brother, started to get involved as well. He was heavily involved with the charity and you know loved his niece to death, so he wanted to do everything he could, so he decided to take up paddling as well. Um, I thought I was an expert compared to him because he was still learning. And I said to Jed, how about we paddle from Clareville at home all the way around Avalon Surf Club, then we'll run back and get the car and pick up the ski. So we live on a peninsula, so it's probably about a uh, eight-kilometre paddle in still water down to the headlands where then it goes into open ocean and you paddle another eight kilometres back up to Avalon Beach. Jed was all for it. It was a, a magical Sunday afternoon. We headed off about three and off we went. Jeb was way slower than me and I'd just do big circles and come back and pick him up and uh, try and support him because I loved having someone to paddle with me. It was really good for a change. As much as I like paddling myself and just putting my head down and going hard, it was nice to have a chat and someone next to me. 
Jed hadn't fallen off, he was good, he was going fine, got out into the open ocean at Palm Beach and still fine, but he said he found it a bit uncomfortable. He'd been in the ocean, I think, once or twice before. And we were doing the Ks pretty well. We'd slowed down a bit. It wasn't going as hard as I'd normally train. I was probably about uh, 20 metres in front of him, I suppose, when we came up to Whale Beach, which is the last beach before we got to Avalon. We're probably about three kilometres out in the ocean because we're sticking off the headlands, making a beeline for Avalon headland. And I'm looking ahead and, you know, it is getting a little bit darker. It's that time in the afternoon where the sun's starting to get lower. And I look ahead and what do I see? A dirty big shark fin coming straight at us. I was probably about 50 metres away. And I thought, oh no, do I tell Jed or not? I'm still paddling, it's still coming straight at us. I sort of slowed down and I yelled out to Jed, I said... Jed, just put your left foot on the rudder and let's head out to sea a bit. And he says, why? And I said, all right, I'll have to tell you, but there's a shark just in front of me about 10 metres now. Don't panic, whatever you do. What's he do? Panic. Puts his left foot down, just shit himself. Next thing I'm paddling, I couldn't see what he was doing, but he's only probably about 10 metres behind me. The shark's gone under me and it must have been close to Jed or if he steered away not far from him. Next thing I hear, splash. I thought, oh, fuck, what's going on here? This shark's got my brother-in-law. And I turn around, here's Jed. He's fallen off his ski in the panic. And it was like what they say, I suppose, Jesus walking across water. Here's Jed. He was that quick back on the ski and back in the seat and paddling. Uh, and the look on his face, he, he turned white. Anyway, I'd sort of done a little bit of a U-turn around behind him and I sat right next to him. I said, Jed, don't panic, just do the normal thing. He said, it's all right for you to say that. Of course, I'm panicking. And, uh, you know, we we end up paddling. We had no idea where this shark was. And I'll tell you what, your heart is racing. And my heart's racing as well. Everyone has a fear factor. And I'd be lying if I was saying, you know, it didn't scare me. It it definitely scared me. These things are huge. And they're, they're predators. They don't know what you are. Um, you know they are likely to attack and there have been a lot of ski paddlers attacked over the years anyway we managed to get to Avalon in, in time and back onto the beach and he said that's it I'm never coming out with you again meanwhile the Kalachi job was in a holding pattern watching and waiting various crims coming and going some noteworthy others not until one day the whole investigation turned on its head it was funny with the people coming in and out, you know, we'd usually use their car regos because um, most of them drove to Kalachi's place and we were able to identify them. And this one particular day, a car rolled up with a, a funny rego. Uh, we actually couldn't identify who it was. And he walked in the door and there was a conversation, very close friendship. It was a new conversation. So it sort of made our ears prick up and have a good listen. And uh, lo and behold, it was Detective Sergeant Bob Irwin from Task Force Bax, who was meant to be investigating Kalachi and the cohorts after the Woodrow Commission. So this was interesting. This was our first touch of perhaps there is some corruption in this job. And the way the conversation went, there definitely was. Sergeant Bob Squeaker Irwin, a principal member of Task Force Bax, who was meant to be investigating Les Kalachi and organised crime, had just popped into Kalachi's for a coffee. The alarm bells were ringing. 
Project Daimia had been set up completely off the grid for this very reason. Commissioner Peter Ryan had suspected that there may have been senior police corruption. For the first time, Craig and his team were staring it straight in the face. In the next episode of Conviction, Kalachi decides to go into the manufacturing business. The Guzes take a welcome break as Jessica finishes her first round of radiation treatment and Craig continues to train for his marathon fundraiser.